Welcome to the first ever Season 2, Episode 1 of Squad Army. Today, Brad, Forrest, Irene, and Eric discuss the first episode of the Amazon original series, Good Omen, by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. We'll also have a look at Genesis 2 and 3 to see what we really know about Adam and Eve. In our BSTS segment, we'll talk about the late, great congressman and civil rights hero, John Lewis, uh, and Obama's eulogy speech surprise. Uh, we'll end things off with our homegrown update, this time on an automatic chicken coop door opener. As always, this first ever episode of Swadharma is proudly brought to you by Abby's Blue Hole Brewing. Abby's Blue Hole Brewing, deeper and wetter. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Brad. I'm Forrest. I'm Irene. I'm Eric. And we're sniffing the fumes at Delphi. All right. Well, we started off here with REMs. It's the end of the world as we know it. Just seems like a perfect apocalyptic song to start off our first apocalyptic episode on good omens and uh i wanted to talk about there's a lot of lyrics as i after i picked that i started reading through the lyrics and investigating who lenny bruce is and all this sort of socio-political discourse that's in that particular song but i don't know if we'll get to any of that today or not because we always have plenty to talk about but let's start off by just reminding everybody who we are and uh, just saying like anything that's new going on in your lives so i guess i'll start i'm brad yeah, I guess the news in my front is that I have three days left of employment, and then I will join the, you know, 25 million Americans that uh, are unemployed. How about y'all? Irene, tell us about yourself. I'm a uh, penniless grad student who works in an internship that is severely underpaid. I have a new roommate that has a cat. So I think that's permission for me to also get a cat, despite my lease saying um, no pets allowed. So yeah, that's all of you of me. I wish I could give you one of my kittens. Uh, <laughs> I know, our kittens I asked too late. <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah. We only gave, or only giving one away. We're keeping two of them. And even giving okay. the one away is super hard to do. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's already too many cats. How about you, Eric? Um, Eric, you might remember me from season one as the loud Dominican kid. Uh, what's new in my world? I switched jobs from working in education to working in corporate training. So that's a good change, I think, hopefully. And I'm finally moving out of my mama's house, which is going to be a, a joy. I'll probably have to move back considering how life is here in the United States. But at least for the hopefully six months of my lease, I will be independent. Wow, that's big news for sure. Yeah, and I'm sure that they will miss you and all your cooking and grilling yeah. and baking. and all. It was an stuff. awkward uh, dinner conversation when my mom found out. but. You know, she's coming around to it slowly but surely. <laughs> How about you, Forrest? I've been doing all right. I'm just a uh, South Carolinian trying to get by. Ironically, I kind of haven't had like a normal W-2 kind of job for the past, you know, like two years until the pandemic started. And then I got a job. I uh, started working with your sister. Uh, oh, okay. Mom. Right. To, uh, <laughs> uh, trying to get as much... Uh, local produce into as many people's hands as possible doing stuff like that yeah that's good that's great we should talk about what she does and yeah her nonprofit at some point cool well if people have listened to our episodes before they know that that we've already had an episode where we talked about good omens that's because i was fortunate to have irene on that day and gotta talk about good omens when irene is on 
But I thought in part that discussion was so good and just opened so many doors uh, and so many new ideas that I thought, you know, maybe we should do a series devoted to the show. There's already a couple of other podcasts that aren't good omens, but I've listened to them and I definitely think there's room for another one if you get my drift. So yeah, I thought we'd do six episodes to match, you know, the six episodes of the show. And uh, we're all coming at it from different perspectives. That's what the Swadharma podcast is always about, is trying to come at, you know, big topics and philosophy, theology, and ethics from as many different perspectives as we can get in. So let's just start by just like, what is Good Omens? We're not going to have any spoilers for anything beyond episode one, but obviously we're going to talk about episode one today. But we won't give any spoilers beyond episode one for this episode, and the next one we'll talk about episode two so if you want to play along at home you know then uh watch and then look out for our next episode but so good omens is an amazon prime original series written by neil gaiman and terry pratchett or actually it's based on the book that was written by neil gaiman and terry pratchett and then it was terry pratchett's dying wish that neil gaiman turned it into a miniseries so uh, gaiman is the one who wrote the, the screenplay to turn it into this miniseries kind of as an homage to terry pratchett and there's lots of you know, sort of symbolism and little little nods to Terry Pratchett in the series itself kind of tucked away. So we might come across some of those as we discuss. But basically, Good Omens is like a humorous, thought-provoking interpretation of the apocalypse end of the world. And it mixes in some elements of Hebrew and Greek scriptures, which we'll talk about some today. What I would call pop Christian mythology, heaven and hell and demons and angels and things. And the 1976 horror film, The Omen which I just watched for the first time today to prep for this. So anything y'all want to add about the series in general, or Irene is probably the only one of us that has read the book and has read it more than once as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I would highly recommend the book. I've also never actually seen The Omen. I'm kind of a chicken shit when it comes to horror movies. Is it worth watching? In I thought it was like? good. Yeah, I, you know, actually, to be honest, I watched the 2006 version. I, did, I haven't yet watched the original original, but I think I might watch it tonight or something. But no, it was, I don't get scared by those kind of movies because they just, I don't know, I get more scared watching the news than I do um, <laughs> Good Omens. Um, but yeah, I didn't think it was especially scary, but it was, it was good. Yeah, that was good. Julia Stiles is in it and Liv Shriver. Um, it's a really good I, cast. I would say no. I would say no, it's probably not worth watching. Oh, really? <laughs> Have you seen the original? I haven't, seen, I haven't seen it in a while. No, I saw the 2006 version. Okay. Eric, have you seen any of them? Nah. I, mean, I grew up in a pretty uh, religious household, so things like that weren't really, <laughs> weren't really a couple of Oh, uh, okay. My grandma, if I watched it. Yeah, yeah. When I was a kid, being super religious made those movies way more scary, the, the possession movies, because mm. those ones were real, you know, like the ghost stories weren't real, but the, the possession ones, they were super real. Yeah, yeah. Um, Poltergeist scared the crap out of me when I was a kid, for sure. Gave me nightmares and all kinds of stuff. But so The Omen, the original horror film, or at least the 2006, which came out on June 6, 2006, so 666. It's about the Antichrist and the birth of the Antichrist and his sort of coming in, coming of age, but he's uh, much younger than the character in Good Omens. But there's lots of similarities, like they're both given to American ambassador to England and so uh, do y'all want to recap episode one? I wrote up a little recap, but maybe we can just, yeah. What happened, Forrest, you just watched it. So you want to recap episode one for us? Sure, I can, I 
give a brief summary, I suppose. So we start in the Garden of Eden. Well, actually, we start before the universe was made, but they get the universe made and get to the Garden of Eden in like the first 20, 30 seconds. God kind of explains everything up to the Garden of Eden. And then we go from there, uh, uh, angel and demon become friends in the Garden of Eden, and then it shows them, you know, kind of interacting through all these calamities and whatnot throughout history. And then you get to present day where the Antichrist is born. And because they like the earth, they've been living here since it was created. They come up with a plot to try and stop Doomsday from happening. Yeah, and all of that happens in episode one. I remember watching it and thinking, how is there going to be five more after this? Because <laughs> it seemed like everything happened there. But yeah, that was great. Y'all have anything I want to add? So Eric is coming at this as our ideal listener who hasn't seen the show. So he hasn't seen the show or read the book, right, Eric? Nope, not at all. But I think it's, it's kind of interesting. And it's something I was kind of wondering, because I have watched the show Lucifer, um, which is one of my favorite shows on Netflix. I and mean, it kind of made me think like, it's interesting how there's this kind of push, and I don't know how intentional it is to suddenly bring Christianity to the forefront, but in the form of mythologies. And I'm not sure whether it's just because we live in a time where it's a little bit more okay for people to kind of talk about Christianity in this fashion. But thinking about watching Lucifer and how I can easily see how back in the day that would piss people off. Um, and it seems like Good Omen kind of plays with this faith in a way that's respectful to the faith while also kind of poking fun and also keeping the humor alive. And it's just really interesting that that's kind of happening all around the same time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was just gonna say it's interesting. I think it's like, what these sorts of pop culture sort of mediums give us is like we're humans having a spiritual experience and it's showing like the opposite like in good omens it's like these ethereal creatures having like a human experience mm. and i think that's a really cool like seeing us like both come at like the same kind of theological questions from very like two very different angles mm-hmm. i think that's why sort of it, it appeals so much to us yeah, because there's actually, I mean, it's kind of two different storylines in the in the show. So you've got the storyline between Aziraphale and Crowley, and then you've got the storyline of like the Antichrist and what's going on with him. Yeah, basically, they don't know where the Antichrist is. You know, they're looking for him. The Antichrist is born, but there's a mix-up at the place, at the birthing center. And so the Antichrist doesn't go where he's supposed to go, which is to the American ambassador to England, but instead just winds up in a normal, you know, English home. And then Aziraphale and Crowley are trying to influence the an- who they think is the Antichrist, but it's really just, you know, a kid that mistakenly got pushed there. So the point is that the Antichrist kind of grows up without any supernatural influence. So there's also a nature-nurture theme going on through the, the philosophical side of the discussion. So what do we think about this Adam and Eve scene? So in their in the sort of the denouement, I guess, of the opening scene, we see Crowley and an angel named Aziraphale having a chat as they watch Adam and Eve depart from Eden into the wilderness. And here Crowley says, I'm not quoting exactly, but something like, I don't understand why it's bad to know the difference between good and evil. And says, you know, it seems like a bit of an overreaction. And then he jokes to Aziraphale, you know, what if I was the one who did a good thing by helping humans to know the difference between good and bad, and you did a bad thing by giving them a flaming sword, um, which is a reference to Genesis 3. Let's just pause and talk about that scene and what, what do you take away from it? Or what, yeah, what are your thoughts on it? I know you have some thoughts, Irene. <laughs> you see it on my face trying to keep it in. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I think 
in a sort of very interesting commentary on sort of modern day theology, I think like those couple of sentences really gave me the space to think like, yeah, like actually why? Like why, why was knowing the difference such an issue? And is it like, it's interesting that we're given sort of free will and it's like, well, isn't, isn't deciding between doing something good and bad as opposed to just being sort of just doing what you're told to do kind of, it's more virtuous. Like I'm deciding to do good rather than I'm just being told to do something that I'm told is just, it is what it is, if that right. makes sense. Yeah, because I mean, how could there even be a choice, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in order to be ethical or be good, don't you have to at least know the other options? Yeah, mm -hmm. um, sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to uh, we'll get to Genesis two and three in a second, but yeah, that, that's where it sounds familiar to me. Uh, brings up this idea of kind of placing God as like the protective parent, where it makes us wonder like, what was God so afraid of by not letting Adam and Eve know the difference between good and evil? Is it that God assumed that if they knew the difference, they would act wrongly? In which case as an all-powerful being, like, why would you create something that you know is going to make the wrong choice? And that's something that I've, probably, I've always kind of played with, and I've always kind of wondered. Because it seems like, especially in Genesis, that, like, God is playing that protective parent, which I'm not a parent, but I can assume, I know, Doc V, as you, like, you kind of wonder sometimes, like, you want to shelter your kid from the world, because you're not necessarily sure how they're going to react when they're in it, but you also have to recognize that at some point, you're going to have to let them experience it. Mm -hmm. But do you give your kid the benefit of the doubt, or do you just assume that if you put this in front of them, they're going to do the wrong choice? And that's like, I'm very, I'm very much simplifying it, but I think it's interesting that like, what, what was God so afraid of, or what is God so afraid of by giving us, by not wanting to give us his power? It's very right. much a like, I told you, like, because I said so. Mm. Like, and that's <laughs> it, that's all the reason you knew is because I said so. I've caught that a lot as a kid. <laughs> Wouldn't not knowing the difference between good and evil just be like a sociopath or a psychopath i mean you would be doing something incredibly evil you know raping a baby or something and you would have no idea that it was wrong why would that be something that was good why would that be the starting point not knowing the difference between good and evil yeah like, are they just base good and they don't know that they're good but then they don't have to think about it so everything's fine all the time well i think it's like because you're they were made in the image of God. It's like, you just, like, you are. And, like, good and evil don't really matter. Like, they matter, but it's, like, because they're so tied together, it's, like, I don't know, like, God kind of transcends those things, if that makes sense. Like, before the, like, the fall from heaven, like, when all the demons and stuff sort of fell, like, good and evil, like, it existed, but it was very much, like, an abstract concept, and it didn't matter because it was, like, it was just there. I don't know if that makes any sense, but like, I think only after the fall, I think there was like two falls. There was like a fall from heaven for the angels, and then there was also like humanity's fall. Mm -hmm. But okay, so this is this is getting a little bit ahead of myself. But like, <laughs> so in episode one, they talk about like the ineffable plan, which is like God's unknowable plan, and like you know you can't know it because it's like unknowable. And I'm probably yeah. gonna struck by lightning for for saying God, this. God like, describes it as uh, playing a game of poker in a pitch yeah. black room with a dealer that won't tell you the rules or what game. And smiles playing. all the time. And smiles yeah. all the time. <laughs> and smiles all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like you know, the great plan is you know, humans you know screwed up, ate the apple, got kicked out of Eden. Now we're gonna have to have this huge big war to like determine sort of who's gonna win, good or evil. And then like, 
So, and like they talk about it, like that's the great plan, but what's the ineffable plan? Right. And like you see this thread throughout the first episode of like, you know, supernatural and human all exhibiting this, this free will and deciding for themselves. Like, you know, um, part of the, the prophecy of the, what's it called? The Antichrist is that um, hell sends him a, a hellhound and whatever he names that dog over, yeah, the, the, yeah, the beast will determine its its characteristics and because this kid's been basically raised as some little small town english boy who just wants a pet he names it dog and the hellhound right. is basically just a fluffy little like terrier right. something to run down um, rabbit holes and to teach tricks yeah. and stuff yeah. yeah i think it's a, it's a very interesting sort of like why are we given free will if we're not meant to use it according to sort of you know the great plan like it's yeah a well even free will I mean, me being a theologian, I, I'm so tempted to just like jump to the next segment and like focus on the Genesis text, but we're going to put that off and um, do it in a few minutes. But I think a lot of the same questions that, that we're asking right now, we need to also ask in relation to that text. Um, you know, like Forrest is saying, like, if you don't know the difference between good and bad, then you can't, then whatever you do, yeah, then how do you, how do you, you know, judge whether actions are doesn't even make sense, right? I mean, how could you mm -hmm. perform actions and not know whether they're good or bad um, unless you had knowledge of good and how bad? How do you make a decision? Right, how do you make a decision? Including, of course, the decision of whether or not to eat the apple or to eat the fruit, right? So then even that decision... Yeah, um, didn't they Didn't they seem to know that it was bad to eat the fruit? They well, were being secretive about it, right? Like well, they were, or, did, or was it only an, after they ate the apple that they felt shame for eating the apple? They did feel shame after they ate the apple. Um, they realized that they were naked and then covered themselves. We're told at the end of chapter two that they were naked and unashamed. And then at the end of chapter three, they yeah. were ashamed. But before they ate the apple, they, you know, have no idea what's good or bad. Even if they were, you know, even if they were told, don't eat that. It's bad if you eat that. I mean, definitionally, definitionally they wouldn't, they wouldn't they know understand what that bad is. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Which then ties into what Irene was saying about the ineffable plan versus the the great plan so mm -hmm. then the great plan versus the ineffable plan right so then as god's is part of the god's plan to absent god's self from the scene um in order to allow crowley who's one of his creatures according to genesis 3 you know to perform his swadharma um or his role his you know to perform his function which is to introduce knowledge of good and bad prior to which they couldn't have made that decision so you know crowley crowley in in the book right from the very beginning is sort of this ambiguous character even questioning whether or not he's doing good or bad and you know he seems to have quite a love and affection for humans and certainly for humanity in general maybe we'll talk more about that we'll talk definitely more about Crowley and sort of the changes that he goes through through the series um, as we move through the episodes but yeah even here that question between good and evil and how could you know the difference between good and bad if you don't know the difference between good and bad so how could you know that it was bad to eat the fruit yeah. Yes. <laughs> Anything you want to say about the, the latter part of the episode other than uh, naming the dog dog? I think there's probably a lot more from the book. Uh, I know you've said this to me before, Irene, that there's a lot more about the them, the they. Yeah, the them, the who's them. Adam's little like posse. Yeah, like they're kind of, they've got like this, like a kind of sinister vibe to them, like a group of sort of, you know, arrogant preteens kind of. Like they're, like, they're, like, really interesting foil to, like, like, you have, like, Satan and his, like, 
the lords of hell or whatever you've got god with like the archangels and then you've got adam who's got his like little group of friends and there's like a clear hierarchy there but i don't know it's like it's it's a really interesting like little trio there of like hierarchies and like how adam is like he's a ringleader yeah and he's got this like sort of bigger like plan around him that's being sort of dictated to him but they're very genuine friendships i mean they're very close and absolutely yeah and those genuine friendships turn out to be quite influential in young Mm -hmm. adam's life what if we take a pause here and listen to a little britney spears um and then uh turn to genesis 2 and 3 but then we can still keep talking about um good omens just you know more in connection with genesis 2 3 Mm -hmm. cool let's do it Oh, Brittany. Brittany's been in the news recently, too. It seems fitting to get her in here. So that brings us to Genesis 2 and 3. And, you know, my tendency is always just to, like, read the text, but I'm going to refrain from that as much as I can, at least in chapter 2. But definitely want to read some of chapter 3. And Irene and Eric, you've had me in class before, so you know that this was a this is one of the first things that we read towards the beginning of, or at least in the first half of the semester in my Religious Quest course, which is on creation, creativity, and recreation. So here, of course, we're you know beginning with the story of creation from Genesis. We spend a lot of time on Genesis 1, especially 26 and 27, and uh, which is you know um, being created in God's image, which we'll talk a little bit about um, now, I hope. Um, but we have a different story in Genesis 2 and 3. Um, and Eric, a few minutes ago, you were talking about, you know, my perspective as a dad. And I think my perspective, uh, my reading of Genesis 2 and 3 has evolved and changed considerably over the past, even over the past year, in large part due to my students. Because, you know, I mean, I can't even tell you what, what a dream come true it is to be able to, you know, teach the same material. It might sound boring. For me, it's not because of the material that it is, I guess, but to see, teach these texts over and over again, but with, you know, a whole new group of students. Each, every one of them brings, you know, a different perspective to the text and brings different experiences and different understandings to the text. And that just has really opened up the text for me in so many different ways. And also, of course, just studying it from an academic perspective, you know, over those years as well. But I think I've come to see the story in a totally different way than I did originally, which is, I now see it much more as a coming of age story, as a birds and the bees kind of talk. When when your kids are entering puberty, which one of my kids is entering puberty, then you know it comes comes time to talk to them about the realities of two things, which is what do I say like every single class in every single one of my classes that philosophy and theology are always about sex and death. And here in this particular episode, right from the beginning of Genesis, in Genesis 2 and 3, a discussion of the reality of death and the reality of sex. And those two things are completely joined. Um, And not for accidental reasons, because of course, 
you know, sex is what, what produces the next generation, which is which continues on after our death, right? So it's a creation and a recreation, a cycle, a cycle and continuance of society based on sex, which is the only way to overcome death, right? And so I think I've started to, to read Genesis 2 and 3 much more in that sort of vein as, you know, somewhat maybe of a story that's much, much older than the Bible, of course. These, these are much more ancient than they they weren't written in biblical form, but there are collections of texts that are far older that were then collected into the Bible, meaning the book. So I see this as, you know, maybe a story that parents would tell their children or talk to their children, which is then a coming of age, right? It's that when you reach the age of puberty, then you need to know the difference between right and wrong or coming from my Baptist background, we call that the age of discernment, you know, where you become old enough to distinguish between right and wrong, good and bad, which is exactly where Adam and Eve end up here, right? Knowing the difference between good and bad, which causes them to realize their nakedness and to see one another as sexual objects, which then leads to their reproduction, right? And discussion of offspring and childbearing and all those kind of things. So that was a long intro. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm in professor mode, I guess. So in chapter two, which I'm not going to read, but in chapter two, we see in that God first creates Adam out of the soil, out of the dust, forms him out of out of dust, and then blows the Ruach Elohim, the breath of God, into Adam, therefore enlivening, giving him life, breathing the breath of God is the, our own breath. So when we breathe, it's the breath of God flowing in and out of our bodies. And then then creates the Garden of Eden. So interesting, God creates Adam. And I'm not sure what Adam's doing while God creates the Garden of Eden. He's just like hanging out to, somewhere. And then God places Adam in the Garden of Eden and then says in verse 9, out of the ground the Lord gave the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So those trees are then created there in verse 9. Then a few verses later, in verse 16, 17, and the Lord God commanded the man, you may eat freely of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. I pause there because I think maybe coming from my, my background, you know, growing up in a very sort of fundamentalist Southern Baptist community, where we always tried to read the text as literally as possible. Um, that's what was one of the goals is to, you know, not read something into it or make it cha change it or make it say something else. Um, then, you know, not turn it into what you want it to say, but to read what the text actually says. And so for me, when it says, in the day that you eat of it, you shall die, that to me sounds like when you eat the apple, then you will die that day. Does that seem to me what it means to y'all? Mm -hmm. does, uh, does that seem like something silly to pause and emphasize so much? Well, no, because like you read on and like they're still alive. They just got kicked out of the garden. It's like, well, what right. do you mean by death? death? The death of what exactly? Right. Like the loss so, of life or, yeah. Right. So it seems very clear that if they eat of it, they're going to die that day. But exactly like you said, that's not actually what happens. So then after this commandment to Adam, God creates every other animal on earth, right? And then eventually after creating every living creature, then creates Eve or maybe not creates, but forms Eve out of Adam's rib. And then, yeah, the end of chapter two says uh, they were naked and unashamed, which then brings us to chapter three. 
uh, chapter three, I do want to kind of read, but maybe uh, since I've been talking a lot, get somebody else's voice in here for a minute and just what do y'all think of anything so far that you want to add or reflect on? I feel like um, just harkening back to what you were saying, just thinking about how you mentioned it as like a coming of age story is really kind of in real time changing my perception of this chapter. Because I'm thinking, like, putting, keeping with the theme of, like, God as this concerned parent. You know, like, parents often exaggerate the consequences of an action for the sake of hoping that their kids would be, like, the amount of times my mom has told me, like, don't do this because you're going to get a go pregnant or, like, and then you're going to lose a job and then you're going to not have a house. And, like, it just escalates so much. <laughs> and I'm always in my head, I'm like, damn. But it also, like, does affect you. <laughs> you know, I think maybe part of it could be exaggeration or maybe God was saying, you know, which is every parent's biggest fear is when their kids do lose their innocence and they're no longer this, like, precious little thing that you're holding on to. It, it is a form of death in a way because you no longer can hold on to that image of your child as what they once were, as these innocent, unashamed, naked beings. And now that there's something else and there's something different and you have to kind of adjust to it, but no parent really wants to adjust to that reality of their children. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, that just brings to mind, you know, I, um, as you guys know, I sometimes make uh, inappropriate jokes and inappropriate comments. Um, just, you know, every once in a while. Um, yeah, you know, but, uh, but speaking as a dad again, you know, of course I don't, I don't pull any punches. I just say what I'm thinking whenever, whatever context I'm in. So it's, you know, frequent that I'll make inappropriate comments or jokes, um, around my kids. But as a dad now, what's, what's interesting is I've made those comments my whole life and the kids just usually shrug it off. But now Leela will sometimes laugh at the jokes. Um, which is, you know, it's like, oh, right, yeah, now she gets it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a little different. Right, <laughs> yeah. All right, well, should we move on to uh, Genesis 3? Anybody want to read it so it's not my voice? Forrest, you have such a good voice. Yeah. It's all sexy and whatnot. Yeah. Now the serpent was more... <laughs> now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Ye hath God said, Yeah, yea, yea. Hath it. I've a... what, what are you reading? King James. James. King James, yeah. Okay, oh, all right. Let's read. Wait, let me be scholar for a second. Okay. So one issue with the King James Version of the Hebrew Bible is that the King James Version is an Old English translation of the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Again, um, telephone, basically. It is a little bit of telephone, yeah. Um, and also in a, in a way of speaking that we don't often speak today. So let's read the NRSV. Wait, wait. When God says you will die, that doesn't necessarily mean like right now after you eat the apple, right? It could mean like you lose your immortality. I mean, that's the way most people interpret it. Um, okay. But I think they interpret it that way because the alternative would be to take it literally. Yeah. Which then, which then causes, yeah, it, ca it raises the issue of the fact that that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Okay, sorry. That, I know that was kind of obvious, but I was like, wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just, yeah, I like to... Because what happens is every time I teach the text, you know, we go through and I read that and I say, what does this mean? And everybody says, well, that's what it means. If you eat of it, then you'll die that day. And then we get to chapter three and I say, well, you know, why didn't they die? And it's like, oh, well, that's not really what it meant. I'm like, well, didn't we just all agree a minute ago that that's what it meant? Let's hear it. Okay. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, or your, eye, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was, an, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to the man he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you, turn, you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and, and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. Yeah, see, you got a super sexy voice. It just sounds, you know. <laughs> you better read your voice. Yeah. Can what we talk about how Adam totally threw Eve under the bus? <laughs> yeah, he, did. he was right there next to her, and he's like, she made me do it. Like, yeah. No. I don't tell you, dude. <laughs> I mean, it's also like, if you think and about then, it. And then Eve throws the blame to the snake, like, no, and me. No, right. Adam's like, no, it was her. And she's like, no, it was him. But at least, like, Eve was, like, partially true. Like, she, he, she did get deceived. Like, Adam, if you think about who was the Don't actual she? person that broke, Adam was the one that broke everything because he, he saw everything and then still did it. So he made the choice. Like, we can, at least Eve can say, like, I got tricked by this snake, which still sounds shitty, but, like, <laughs> she has a little bit more of, a, of, of an offense there. And then Adam blames God, too, because he's like, well, you gave me this woman. Like, all right, bro. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I was just listening to the woman that you made me, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like the most, like, <laughs> masculine thing ever. Like, blame yeah. everyone but yourself. That's right, yeah. 
Yeah, I never picked up on that before. I like that. Yeah. Um, also, just on that point that Eric was making, yeah. you know, to point out that that God commanded Adam not to. Chapter two, verse sixteen, seventeen. Lord God commanded the man, uh, "You may eat freely of every tree of the garden, but the tree of good and evil, knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die." But this is before, you know, any other. There's only Adam and the Garden of Eden. That's the only mm-hmm. thing that exists. There's no other animals. There's no serpents. There's no anything. So those things were all created next. And then, of course, Eve. So one question that, you know, we might ask is, you know, who told Eve that it was wrong? Didn't it mention that Adam told her at some point? Or does it not ever say anything like that? Well, like the, the serpent asks her hey, is this actually what God said? She's like, yep, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, the serpent says, did God say you shall not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle. So yeah, she was told about it by either God or Adam, I suppose. So, well, without reading into it, we would presume that it, that Adam was the one yeah. who told her. Yeah. Um, and then so if that's the case, then the original sin from that perspective, was not disobeying God, but disobeying her husband. Who then threw her under the bus. <laughs> Who then threw her under the bus. Right? <laughs> um, yeah, but also, yeah, she doesn't, um, she's never told this commandment, and she's the one then who doesn't really break it. But then also, you know, what about the serpent? I mean, let's evaluate what the serpent actually says, because he says, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like god knowing good and evil and then so what actually happens after they eat it even god says in verse 22 the man has become like one of us interesting plural there knowing good and evil and now he might reach out his hand take also from the tree of life and live forever yeah so if they just eaten if they just broken one more rule they would have been exactly like god knowing good and evil and living forever which again it's just kind of raised crowley's question like, why would it be bad to become more like God? Yeah, when you've already been made in the image of God. Yeah. Yeah. So what are, like there are like degrees of it. It sounds like. Yeah. So like like why offer us the world if you don't want us to take anything from it or take advantage of it or use it? You know, it's kind of like you're you're kind of putting them in a tough position. You know, it's and granted, before they knew what good and evil was, and they didn't, it didn't really matter. But it's like. It's kind of a tease. Like God's just kind of teasing everybody here. Like, He's like yeah, God is. I mean, the plan is ineffable, right? Well, actually, you no. Know this reminds me of like the like a platonic ideal. Like God is the ideal, and then like everything in the cave is like an imperfect copy of that. If that makes sense, like so that like, if you're in the image of God, you're not God. You're like a not imperfect, but like you're not quite the ideal. Right, right. So, yeah, in fact, that, that idea comes from Plato's Phaedrus dialogue. And in the Phaedrus dialogue, um, yeah, he's, it's this discussion in the third speech, the second speech by Socrates, where he says, when he looks at the boy and compares the, the boy, his student, it's about discussion between teacher and student. And he, you know, says that from the teacher's perspective, he sees the student as an image of God. You know how important that verse is, that phrase is to me, <laughs> since my whole course is built around that phrase, uh, you know, created in the image of God from chapter 1, 26, 27, which then comes up again here in chapter 3, verse 22. The man has become like one of us, you know, in, in God's image. 
but here it's defined, knowing good and evil. So therefore, yeah, as you're saying, sort of moving up that platonic hierarchy from shadows to images to knowledge, knowledge is the third one, and then um, ideas or forms, goodness itself. And uh, so yeah, to move up that hierarchy has always been seen as something good from a philosophical perspective. Even in Proverbs, um, the book of Proverbs, which obviously we won't get into, but Proverbs also kind of sings the praises of knowing good from evil and how this was part of that plan. And so it doesn't look as God as, you know, lying in um, chapter two, but instead kind of laying the groundwork for an ineffable plan that we are playing. But that playing always moves towards greater freedom and greater knowledge of good and evil and hopefully towards greater ethical treatment, you know, of mm-hmm. one another. That's my interpretation. It is interesting, though, because, like, part of the reason that Eve goes for the apple is because, like, you know, it's pretty and it's food and stuff like that, but, like, it's desirable for gaining wisdom. And it's, like, it's just a defining human character, like, trait, that curiosity, that, but why? Right. I think it's interesting, though, because although the serpent does tell, tell Eve that it'll make them more like God, when in the verses where it's talking about what actually drove her to eat the fruit, it didn't seem like her interest was to be like God or to know the difference of good and evil. She was more kind of attracted, and like everyone's pointing out, like she was more kind of attracted to its appearance and like the idea of what it might bring. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting to me. Like it, it doesn't seem like her motivation was like, oh yeah, I want to become like God. It was just like, oh, like this looks pretty appetizing. This looks pretty good. Like I'm interested. Let's go for it. I'm trying to find the exact verse. Um, yeah, the weird, the wording is uh, weird. So when the when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate. That the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Yeah, see that that that, that makes I mean when as you're reading that I mean that makes it sound like it's not just that she was putting her faith in the serpent, but that she's actually using her eyes right and her her senses and she can see that it was good for food and that it was delightful and desired to make one wise um so she's making her own decision here she's not being tricked by the serpent you know she's listening to the serpent and the serpent turns out to be 100 percent correct about everything he says yeah. also keep in mind that adam's standing two feet <laughs> right away <there. laughs> yeah we like to, us men like to forget that part sometimes. <laughs> yeah, no, gr- growing up in Baptist church, like you had no idea that Adam was like there while Eve was talking to the snake. Like all the cartoons and stuff is Eve talks to the snake. She yeah. brings the apple like back to Adam back at base camp or whatever. And then they <laughs> eat it. Yeah, and he didn't even know where it came from, right? She's just like, here, eat this. And he eats it. Yeah, and he's like, oh, thank you, beautiful <laughs> right. wife. I'm a perfect man. <laughs> yeah. Also, I, I remember the, the punishment when I was a kid being like, um, you know, now they've, they've re- received their punishment. And so Crowley, Crowley becomes Crowley since he's, he loses his legs, right? The serpent loses his legs. So he's no longer, that's the joke in um, Good Omens is that he was named Crowley because he crawled. But then in verse 14, now you, you, upon your belly you shall go. So he loses his legs and becomes then Crawley doesn't make sense anymore as a name. The woman, you know, increases uh, pains in childbirth and all, and husband shall rule over her. But what happens to the, the dude? I mean, what is his punishment? His punishment is that he has to toil in the garden. Because if I remember from way back in chapter two, 
that was his job was to toil in the garden <laughs> so uh i don't know you know he was toiling in the garden and now he has to keep toiling in the garden now he has to sweat when he told right now he has to sweat yeah. okay that's right uh, yeah. now, now it's gonna be hard cursed is the ground because of you so the ground was cursed so maybe it was like way easier to grow food before poor ground <laughs> yeah, it, just, it seems like God is just like, now you have to fight off all the things that I put to make your life better. Now you have, they're all going to want to kill you. Congratulations. <laughs> and if you go to Australia, we all know how that shit works. <laughs> well, uh, this has been a really interesting and good discussion and maybe gives us uh, some new perspectives on, at least hopefully on Genesis 2 and 3, if not also on good omens. And so anybody who's listening, uh, hopefully you'll listen, you'll follow along and watch episode two before listening to our next episode but for now maybe we'll take another music break so uh how about a little apocalypso by jimmy buffett they say this universe is bound to blow but I say we crank up the Calypso control. Apocalypse, apocalypse, apocalypse. Now I'm no dancer as dancers go. But this is one step that you need to know. Apocalypse, apocalypse, apocalypse. All right, so that was Apocalypso by Jimmy Buffett, uh, which brings us to a few words from our sponsor. Today's episode of Swadharma, as always, is proudly brought to you by Abby's Blue Hole Brewing. Abby's Blue Hole Brewing, deeper and wetter. And that Apocalypso just sends us right into the, the right vibe to talk about Shady Buffett, who, as we all know, is the mysterious, unknown illegitimate love child of Jimmy Buffett. But much more importantly, he's also the brewmaster of Abby's Blue Hole Brewing. And you know, he uh, he just kind of shows up to work whenever the hell he wants to. He came to work in November and then didn't show up again until June. So, you know, he's kind of a slacker. He just kind of like fell into some hole somewhere. But he showed up recently and we brewed up a storm, I tell you. And uh, we had a good old time. And Shady Buffett and I, we he, we even finished off a uh, batch that we started, that he started way back in November. Man, it sat on the yeast for six months. And I was actually, I thought it was turned and gone bad, but we opened it up and Shady said, no, that's good shit. So we, you know, put in the secondary and added some hops and what came out, we've named, thanks to a suggestion from Eric, actually, Mariana. So Mariana is a Canadian style brown ale that is as deep and wet as the trench for which it's named. It's high ABV is sure to get you high, but what goes up must come down. So be careful as you're sipping Mariana brown ale, which I am doing at the moment. So I'm glad to actually have a Swadharma episode for the first time in a long time where we're drinking Abby's Blue Hole Brewing. Abby's Blue Hole Brewing, deeper and wetter. What about y'all? What are y'all drinking? 
I'm drinking uh, water in a Sprite bottle because I could not find a water bottle for the life of me. <laughs> so you're pretending to drink Sprite? <laughs> yeah, I think it makes me look cooler. <laughs> <laughs> I have a green smoothie that's like kale and spinach and hemp and like banana, I think. I don't know. My stepdad made it and it's pretty good. It's a little Yuck. bit grainy, so I keep on having to like clear my throat. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. This is a uh, vodka and an algae. Oh, a lot of vodka in there. <laughs> yeah, I fill up one full algae every day of vodka. Do you really? Problem. <laughs> you know, hey, two pounds. You know, like they say, alcohol is the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Exactly. So that brings us to our BSTS segment, our bright side that shit segment. And so, as uh, I think ever all of our listeners know, um, Congressman John Lewis, who's also a civil rights hero and kind of just an OG um, hero all around, yeah, passed away recently from pancreatic cancer. And so, yeah, first of all, I'd just love to talk about John Lewis and his his funeral procession, which was just steeped with so much symbolism, layers and layers of symbolism, where his casket was taken um, in horse-drawn carriage across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which is the bridge where he became quite well known and, and a martyr of sorts, depending on how you understand that term, but using it in the most literal sense as, you know, witnessing through his own sacrifice to his belief and standing, you know, in a nonviolent way against the uh, violence of racism and, you know, received those massive head blows uh, that almost killed him when he was, when he was only 23 years old, marching beside Martin Luther King. And now then, you know, his body being sort of triumphantly processing across that same bridge, which by the way, was named after Edmund Pettus, who was a grand master of the Ku Klux Klan. So layers and layers of symbolism and history and meaning behind that very um, momentous occasion. So Obama gave a eulogy at uh, John Lewis's funeral. And um, in that, you know, he tends to be, he tends to be careful about staying back out of the focus and not drawing too much attention to himself following that long tradition of ex-presidents who kind of, you know, step out of the way and out of the picture. But there, you know, in that in that moment, for giving a eulogy of John Lewis, Obama kind of dropped a, a huge surprise, which was, you know, he called for the um, for the Senate to end the filibuster, um, and he called it the one of the last symbols, um, the last bastions of the Jim Crow era. So interesting link between the filibuster and Jim Crow, and a huge flip for um, Obama, who has in the past spoken spoken out against you know, removing the filibuster, now is calling for it to come to an end. So it just seems to me like this would be a radical, radical change in our uh, legislative process. And then our, yeah, we give the Congress, I think, a great deal more power. So I don't know, I wonder what you all thought about that. And do you have any reflections to on that, any of that? I didn't actually, I didn't watch, sort of, I watched sort of bits and pieces of the funeral, um, but I didn't actually see sort of Obama's eulogy, but Whenever I think of a filibuster, I always think of that scene from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, where, like, yeah. Jimmy Stewart, like, stands up and just, like, talks for however long it is and, like, to stop that bill from going through. And it's, like, I don't know, like, my perception of the filibuster is, like, 
very honorable moment when he when he does it yeah and it's like it's a it's a it's a protest in itself it's i'm gonna sit here and stop you know what i think is an injustice yeah so I think it was like the last like chance it, for him to like right represent his I think constituents like, i feel like like anything else like i don't know if it's inherently good or evil but it's a tool that can be used either way so i don't know it's like if you take it away then that's a tool that you take away from both sides but i don't know it's interesting yeah, uh, I feel like I need to know a little bit more about the history of it and regarding the civil rights movement and yeah. everything and like yeah. when, how how long, you know, how long has that concept been around, you know, entirely? I think for me, like the, the idea of ending the filibuster, it kind of just brought back this idea that kind of a pervasive theme where protesting is very different when there's a white face behind it versus when there's a black or brown face. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think similar to you guys like I don't really know much about the history but that's kind of what I pulled from it was this this idea where it's okay if it's a white face protesting a white face interrupting a, a service or interrupting a, a commission for their goal but as we see by the way the media talks about black and brown faces just in general when it's a black or brown person whether it's Kaepernick or anybody protesting mm-hmm. you suddenly take an unpatriotic toll or you suddenly forget the message um, and that double meaning I think is 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 very interesting to play around with Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I mean, that, yeah, it's. I mean, as I understand it, the the filibuster, yeah, it came around the late nineteenth century, um, and was not part of the original framing of the Constitution. Um, but it, it was instituted as a way to to slow down change, to prevent change from moving too quickly. So, you know, kind of like uh, Irene was saying. I mean, like all of you are saying, is the, this this power of the minority, putting so much power in the minority to prevent maybe, um, you know, John Stewart, what John Stuart Mill called the, the tyranny of tyranny of the majority. Um, and so, you know, you want the majority to rule, but the, you want, you don't want the majority to, to have tyrannical rule over the minority. So the filibuster was seen as a way to check that um, power. But what I think, you know, what it's become is a, it's, a, it's become a reason to, increasingly factionize where um you know republicans and democrats no longer have any incentive to work together but it's become increasingly divisive and so you need as long as you have you know 40 senators then you can prevent senate from doing anything you know and uh because you need to in order to break the filibuster you need 60 votes um or 61 maybe i guess yeah um, 60 yeah, so that's like the new norm instead of just a simple majority, you have to get over the 60 number, which is, yeah, definitely changed politics a lot in our country. Yeah. So anyway, just wanted to float it. It's something that seems like it could happen this year and maybe something worth at least thinking about more and what we might think about it. I was also going to talk about John Lewis's good trouble phrase and the notions of inspiration and Imitatio Christi, but I think we've already said enough, so I'm gonna leave it there. When the world ends, collect your things, you're coming with me. When the world ends, you tuckle up yourself with me. Watch it as the stars disappear to nothing. The day the world is over, oh.
All right, so that was When the World Ends by Dave Matthews Band. And that brings us, uh, last but not least, to our homegrown segment. I thought, you know, I, I always love talking about the check-ins and I uh, should probably give an update on how many are left. Last time I checked, there were 17. That was this morning. But I have chased the same brown fox away four times today. And he just keeps coming back for more. But... Recently, I got an automatic chicken coop door. Uh, I was coming, going down to South Carolina to see Forrest and everybody else, and, and so put in an automatic chicken door. But it, it's really cool because you program it just with the time and date and your longitude and latitude, and it like automatically opens and closes the door at sunrise and sunset, and it adjusts over the course of the year. But the problem is I live way up on – I kind of live on a – tall really tall hill or maybe small mountain you know it's a hill it's a pretty big hill so also because of where I am and I've got a long view the sun just kind of sets much uh, a bit later and uh, so you know basically I keep trying to adjust it but the problem is the the chickens they just don't go in until the sun sets and so if that door closes five minutes too early then you know I got all these chickens standing in front of this door which happens a lot, and then, you know, I get fewer and fewer chickens. So I've got to adjust it, and you can calibrate it. But the problem is, you know, I mean, every time I go out there to fix it, it's, I, I know that the problem is with the altitude, right? And so the problem is every time I go to fix it, because of the altitude, you know, we're, it, the problem is I'm just too high. Next time, join us uh, when we discuss... Good Omens, episode two. Uh, thanks again to our sponsor, Abby's Blue Hole Brewing. Abby's Blue Hole Brewing, deeper and wetter. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm Brad. I'm Forrest. I'm Irene. I'm Eric. And we're sniffing, and we're sniffing the, the fumes at Delta. <laughs> and Merle Haggard is they just they never seem to age you know I mean I remember like 25 years ago they were really old and they're still really old <laughs> okay okay that's what you mean because I'm like they, those guys look pretty <laughs> <laughs> they, lived, they lived that old 20 years ago <laughs>